This episode is the second of three interviews I did with an officer who spent 14 years on the Seattle Police Department. We pick up where we left off in the previous interview, talking about the work this officer did with the Seattle Police Department's crisis intervention team. We focus on the story of Joel Reuter. Much has been written about Joel, his skill working in technology, his friendly nature, as well as his mental illness, and the incident that ultimately took his life. In today's interview, we discuss how much this officer, along with a mental health professional that partnered with him and the crisis intervention team did to help Joel get the treatment he needed. It's the part of Joel's story you haven't heard. So officer, if you could go back and tell me about the case that you referenced in episode one, which I just highlighted here, the case of Joel Ruder and the work that you did with him over a number of years. Yeah, early in my CIT, in my team, my crisis team work, a case that ultimately became fairly well-known. There was a law that was enacted on behalf of the deceased. Uh, it's called Joel's Law. And Joel was Joel Reuter, a you know, 20-something young man with a pretty substantial mental health problem. He was a tough case that I was involved in because he was such a smart guy. He was brought to Seattle to work for a software company. He was a software developer. Really, in some respects, he was a, he was brilliant at, at coding and, and writing software. Came from a great family. His dad was a legislator, not here in Washington. And Joel, it was really kind of a very sad thing. I'll, I'll give you the whole story. Joel had some problems with mental health in his very early 20s, kind of first psychotic break, which is pretty common for young men. And then he was treated for that very successfully, and he started doing, uh, doing very well. He moved to Seattle after getting a job here, and, and he became ill. He uh, contracted cancer and had to stop taking the medicines that he had been taking for his mental health condition. For some reason, I don't know the pharmacology of it, but cancer drugs couldn't be taken for some reason with the type of psychological drugs he was taking. And he very quickly decompensated. Uh, he became in intensely paranoid, pretty delusional, and his family was, was really struggling, trying to find resources for him, trying to get him connected to help that he did not believe he needed. And so one of the things they did was they asked the DMHPs to go out and assess him for dangerousness, assess him for potential involuntary commitment. And my understanding was that it was very difficult for the, the family to make that happen. So we got involved because we went out with the designated mental health professionals to assist them with making contact with Joel, as we often would do on sort of more volatile clients. Uh, and, and there was some concern about Joel because at some point he had made threats to kill one of the DMHPs. So he he had a lot of stuff going on. He At one point, he believed the demons were chasing him on I-5, and he went 120 miles an hour in his BMW and crashed it in Snohomish County. And, and so it was getting intensely problematic. You know, I started working with him, and my first conversations with him were hours long, and they were through the door of his apartment. We would just talk for a great deal of time, just trying to get him to trust me, to trust that all police are not out to get him. To an extent, I was able to do that after a while. It was helpful because 
the DMHPs ultimately were able to get a court order requiring him to go into treatment involuntarily because of his the danger he was present imminent danger of risk that he was presenting to himself. And so part of where that paid off for CIT or for the police contact was now I had a relationship with him. He sometimes trusted me and at least when it came time for me to go and take it in for involuntary treatment, I was able to get him to open the door to his apartment. I was able to peacefully get him to come with us. And so we were able to get him into the care that he that he needed. Joel was one of these kids whose symptoms seemed to quickly resolve with, with medication. So he was able to get some kind of medication uh, for his mental health condition when he was uh, when he was in the hospital. His symptoms resolved fairly quickly. And as soon as they resolved to the point that he was no longer deemed a, a danger to himself, he was released from the hospital, which is part of Washington state law. And he immediately stopped taking the medication, cycled back into psychotic behavior. And July 4th, several years ago, he had a pretty substantial psychotic episode, believed that he was in, in tremendous danger and was able to go purchase a firearm. He showed up in his building with that firearm, walking around with it out of his case. So it was a semi-automatic pistol. One of the neighbors saw that and became completely freaked out, legitimately and completely rightly, and called the police. And so in the middle of the night, the police show up and they knock on Joel's door, and he immediately does not believe it's the police, begins screaming at them to go away, tells them he's armed, racks the gun as evidence of being armed, and the officers rightly back away from his front door and cordon off the building, start evacuating people. And this standoff goes on for hours and hours. I responded at the request of my sergeant because I had some knowledge of his mental health condition. And during the during the standoff, the SWAT team came out. At this point, Joel was just a very dangerous fella, which is tragic because he was really a very kind and intelligent person. And so it's it's tough from the perspective of the officer that gets to know this person because we don't just see this crazy maniac with a gun. We, we see Joel and we know where he's going with this. And unfortunately, we also recognize that he's incredibly dangerous in the, in the mental state he is, he's in. And it's not like we could just back away and leave him be because he probably would have killed somebody in his apartment building if we had done that because of the substantial paranoia that he was experiencing. So what we do is we cordon off the area. We contain him in his apartment. We call him, we try and communicate with him. A couple of our negotiators spent hours you know, trying to convince him to come out. And these are very talented negotiators. He was just this intractable case. He was just convinced that he was being tracked by spies, aliens, government sources, just a tormented kid. And so, you know, his response to go arm himself was not entirely, if this stuff was really happening, it would be a reasonable thing for a person to do. Unfortunately, it, it wasn't really happening. My job there, having had extensive contact with him and knowing his, his mental health recent history, I was able to feed information to the, the negotiators to try and get them to work any kind of angle. You know, I worked on speaking with the, his healthcare team and because this was an imminent crisis and we were trying to resolve it peacefully. 
they were legally okay speaking with me about when he left the hospital, what his instructions were when he left the hospital, what his condition was, and so forth. Spent many, many hours at this scene. And unfortunately, after many, many hours, for whatever reason, Joel decided to approach the balcony of his apartment to discharge multiple rounds from his firearm. And that was met with a return fire from the SWAT team. And that ended the incident and Joel's life. And it was, you know, just personally, it was crushing because this is a nice, intelligent community member that had a hell of a lot of promise. He had just crummy things happen to him. Because of these crummy things, he became really dangerous at that moment in time. It wasn't the cops coming in with guns blazing. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't anybody wanting to shoot this kid. What it was was this kid was becoming, his, his, his level of danger was unacceptably high, and it had to be resolved. And it's not like we could just, you know, you, you hear, oh, can you just shoot a net gun at him, or can you shoot him in the legs, or, you know, it, it doesn't work that way. That's science fiction. You know, there are less lethal options, and they're great, but you don't address a lethal force encounter with less lethal options. That's that's kind of a premise. So it's terrible, you know? It's, it, it's a terrible thing. You had said his family was very grateful for how you and how the Seattle Police Department had worked with him over time. Yeah, I had a couple of opportunities to meet his parents subsequently. They were both just really gracious people. Uh, I mean, they had lost a son. This was This was unimaginable. But they, they seemed to understand. I mean, they seemed to realize how dangerous he was at that moment. They wished, of course, I mean, they wished that he hadn't gotten there. And part of his law that his dad championed had to do with kind of dissatisfaction with our mental health system and inputs into the system. The gatekeeper has been the designated mental health professionals for many years, or the, the designated crisis responders, I think they're called now. And and uh, his father was, was substantially frustrated with getting them to initially take steps to detain Joel. And so one of the things that Joel's law does is it gives families an avenue to directly petition the, the court for involuntary commitment of their family member, even without the DMHPs being involved or the DCRs being involved, at least to the degree that they were the gatekeepers. So so that's that's the thing that his father kind of championed as a memorial to Joel. But in my interactions with his parents, they they were both very empathetic uh, as to what, what had to be done uh, at the time. And so... You know, they had, they had experienced a terrible loss, but they didn't seem to blame the police for that. I was just going to say, and it sounded like there are times when the family understands and appreciates all that you tried to do and potentially even understands the impact it had on you. Yeah, you know, it was, for me, it was, it was one of the tougher cases that I had had to work as a, as a police officer, but at the inquest, we had a shooting inquest as a result of the you know, Joel's death. And I gave my testimony and his parents were there and it was very difficult to give that testimony because a lot of it talked about what I've just talked about, building a relationship with him, 
trying to get him into care. And then we took a recess at the end of the at the end of my my testimony, and his dad came up to me in the hallway and gave me a hug, and I I lost it. You know, uh, he lost it, I lost it. It was just sad. You know, it was it, it was literally just tragic. I wanted to talk about this because it's just a side that you don't see. As I said, there are a lot of very thoughtful stories that have been written about Joel, and a number that cover the incident itself. But what I have not read is this part of it the extent that the Seattle Police Department and the MHPs and you personally went to to help this young man. It doesn't make news. It doesn't make news. You know, I mean, the only thing that makes news is SWAT sharpshooter kills crazy man in window in Capitol Hill. You know, I mean, there's not enough, there's not enough column space for the whole backstory. Well, that is why I'm doing this podcast. And it's why I started telling the stories of law enforcement more than 10 years ago. The stories that don't get told, the stories that don't make the news. You and I both know just as the community wants its police department to listen to and understand them, rightly so. I hope people get to hear more about what law enforcement really does, the whole of it, not just some of the parts of it, and what each of you commits to the job. In my next episode, my third in a series of three interviews with this officer, we go back to the protests and riots that erupted over the summer. This officer was on the front lines in Seattle, including holding the line at the now nationally known shutdown of the Seattle Police Department's East Precinct. You've seen it in the news and in social media, but hearing it directly from an officer who was there is very impactful. And as I always do, I ask him what the rewards have been and why at this point in time he felt he had to leave the Seattle Police Department, a department he still loves and planned to stay with until he retired. I hope you'll join me.